This is broadcast producer Desi Doyen. We're off this week, but we're happy to share our special coverage of the House January 6th Committee's critical public hearings. Today's episode, Day 5, originally recorded on June 23rd. In our previous hearings, the Select Committee showed that then-President Trump applied pressure at every level of government, from local election workers up to his own vice president, hoping public servants would give in to that pressure and help him steal an election he actually lost. What? Did he say steal? He said steal. He stole the election that he actually lost. Thank you, sir. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Finally. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Oh, better now. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, in Palinville, New York, on WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day. On the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and all your favorite podcast sites except for Spotify, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me. From bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us for special coverage day five of the January 6th hearings. And yes, that was January 6th committee chair Benny Thompson opening Thursday's fifth day of hearings by referring to Donald Trump's attempt to steal the 2020 election. It only took a year and a half, but uh, somebody finally, finally said it. Yeah, yes, someone on the panel used the accurate words to explain what happened. Hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. If you follow this show, you know that we have been very critical about the Democrats and the bulk of the corporate media's failure to describe it as such, using all sorts of words like undermine the results, reverse the election, attempts to undo it. As Washington Post wrote just yesterday, undo the election. Donald Trump, the president of the United States, tried to steal a presidential election. Many times and in many ways. It was nothing short of that. And if a Democrat had done it, you can bet your bottom dollar that Republicans would have been describing it as such every day, every minute since then. So hopefully media pick up on that simple bumper sticker language to explain exactly what went on here, because I think it will help a lot. 
I will be joined momentarily by two excellent guests for special coverage, insight and analysis of Thursday's day five hearings, which just now wrapped up moments ago. Uh, But very quickly, some news from the Supreme Court that I need to at least wave at today in a major expansion of gun rights and a major blow to the state's rights that Republicans claim to believe in when it's a right to create laws and and restrictions that they actually care about. The Supreme Court said on Thursday that all Americans have a right to carry firearms in public, even when elected officials accountable to the electorate in states and local jurisdictions had determined otherwise. The unelected, rogue, corrupt, stolen and packed U.S. Supreme Court majority In a 6-3 decision comes on the heels of a series of recent mass shootings and is expected to ultimately allow more people to legally carry guns on the streets of the nation's largest cities, including New York, L.A., Boston, and elsewhere, despite the large majorities of Americans who oppose the expansion of unregulated weaponry, on our streets, completely ignoring the, quote, well-regulated part of the Second Amendment's right for members of a state militia to bear arms. The Republican justices struck down a 100-year-old New York law requiring that licensed applicants show proper cause to carry a concealed weapon outside of their homes. Writing for the majority, the court's most corrupt justice... And that's a close call at this point. Clarence Thomas wrote, quote, New York's proper cause requirement violates the 14th Amendment by preventing law abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from exercising their Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms in public for self-defense. The majority who claim to be strict uh, constitutionalists who interpret the text of the Constitution literally apparently have a version of the Constitution where the part about states having the right to, quote, well regulate their militias has been whited out. Uh, You know, and I I don't know, uh, perhaps because, you know, you can't murder an entire subway car full of people in New York City with free speech. Nonetheless, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, during the oral arguments for this, said that the Second Amendment right to carry arms in public is really no different than the First Amendment right to, you know, find a street corner to express your free speech. Yeah, really. Um, So that's where we are. We'll have uh, more on that, no doubt, in the days ahead. Um, But, uh, you know, again, the... Supreme Court does not answer to the electorate. The court's decision is wildly out of step with public opinion among voters in the 2020 presidential election. According to AP's expansive vote cast survey of the electorate, just one in 10 Americans, that's 10 percent, felt that gun laws should be less strict than they currently are. But again, the Supreme Court, they don't answer to the electorate who they answer to. Well, I'll leave that to you. For today, as I suspect, we'll discuss this more in the days ahead. Also receiving less attention on Thursday, thanks to the decision to expand guns in the U.S. and everything else going on today, the Supreme Court also just gutted Miranda rights. Yep. Ruling that a person who did not receive their Miranda warning when detained by law enforcement officials, uh, you know, that he or she has the, the right, for example, to remain silent, has the right to an attorney. 
apparently such a person has no right to sue the government for the constitutional violation. So it was there, once again, another 6-3 to three ruling by the rogue, corrupt, stolen, and packed U.S. Supreme Court. But again, more in the days ahead. For the moment, we need to focus today, once again, on the previous president's many failed attempts to steal the 2020 election by overthrowing the U.S. government itself. To that end, of all of Trump's many schemes to steal a second term in office from the American people, the one that has always frightened me the most frankly, was his plan, which came within a hair's breadth of actually succeeding, to decapitate the U.S. Department of Justice and install an apparatchik as Attorney General on January 3rd, 2021, who had never even tried a criminal uh, trial before. A man who would do his bidding by sending a letter to swing states falsely informing them that the DOJ had found massive fraud in the 2020 election that the department no longer had confidence in the results and that the state legislatures should reconvene in special sessions in Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania, and elsewhere to select electors for Trump rather than the voters who had actually, uh, the, the, rather than the electors that the voters had actually elected. That apparatchik was a lowish level attorney at DOJ, a guy by the name of Jeffrey Clark, who had agreed to do Trump's bidding and to lie about the DOJ's finding that there was no fraud that would have affected the results of the election. Clark was told by Trump that he would name him as acting attorney general in place of then acting attorney general Jeff Rosen, who had replaced Bill Barr, who had resigned over uh, all of this just uh, days before. And that almost actually happened. But for a dramatic, hours-long, late-night, celebrity, apprentice-style boardroom meeting in the Oval Office with Clark and Rosen facing off in front of Trump, along with Rosen's acting uh, deputy attorney general, Richard Donahue, and Trump's own White House counsel, declaring that they would all resign en masse along with the entire top level of the Justice Department prosecutors, if Trump pulled that trigger. It was that dramatic standoff that likely prevented a full-on American coup against the United States government carried out by the President of the United States, which prevented the overthrow of this nation as we know it. And that dramatic moment was at the center of Thursday's fifth day of hearings, by the bipartisan U.S. House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection and Trump's multiple attempts to steal the 2020 election. As I said, it just wrapped up moments ago. It included live testimony from former acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen, his acting Deputy AG Richard Donahue, and former Assistant Attorney General in charge of the Office of Legal Counsel, or the OLC, Steve Engel, and it specifically focused on Trump's pressure campaign on the DOJ in his hopes of what committee chair Benny Thompson actually out loud described as Donald Trump's attempt to steal the election. At one point, when describing the dramatic January 3rd Oval Office meeting and what would happen if, in fact, acting Attorney General Rosen was fired and replaced with Jeff Clark, who had never even tried a criminal case, Donahue explained what they told the president when he asked, well, what did he have to lose if he did it anyway? And the president said, what do I have to lose? And 
it was actually a good opening because I said, Mr. President, you have a great deal to lose. And I began to explain to him what he had to lose um, and what the country had to lose and what the department had to lose. And this was not in anyone's best interest. Um, that conversation went on for some time. Uh, everyone essentially chimed in with their own thoughts, all of which were consistent about how damaging this would be to the country, to the department, to the administration, to him personally. And then I said, and we're not the only ones. No one cares if we resign. If Steve and I go, that's fine. It doesn't matter. But I'm telling you what's going to happen. You're going to lose your entire department leadership. Every single AAG will walk out on you. Your entire department leadership will walk out within hours. And I said, Mr. President, within 24, 48, 72 hours, you could have hundreds and hundreds of resignations of the leadership of your entire Justice Department because of your actions. What's that going to say about you? And that appears to have finally stopped at least that part of Donald Trump's coup attempt after days and days of haranguing the Department of Justice with one conspiracy theory after another. I should should add one debunked conspiracy theory after another about fraud. Nonetheless, Donald Trump, uh, after being told time and time again by everyone at the DOJ, at the Department of Homeland uh, Security and the Department of, uh, of uh, the Defense Department, that none of these claims were true. He still went out and repeated them on the ellipse during his January 6th speech, his rally just before the attack on the U.S. Capitol. Near the end of Thursday's uh, fifth day of hearings, the committee shared video evidence that at least six members of Congress, by my count, had sought pardons from Donald Trump for their parts in all of this including uh, Congressman uh, Mo Brooks of Alabama, Matt Gates of Florida, Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, Louis Gohmert of Texas, Andy Biggs of Arizona, and, if I understood it, Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia. The witnesses testified today shortly after CNN broke the news um, just before the hearings began that federal investigators conducted a search on Wednesday, Wednesday morning, of the home of Jeffrey Clark, the former DOJ lawyer who Trump sought to install as AG in the days before the uh, January 6th riot, later reporting in the day said it was a pre-dawn raid that resulted in Jeffrey Clark on the street in his pajamas. No additional information is yet available as to what the FBI may have been seeking in Clark's home, if in fact that is what they were doing there. So, yeah, lots of drama. Even before Thursday's exceedingly dramatic hearing got underway. Joining us for insight and smart analysis of all of this today, well, uh, two guests, one of whom knows quite a bit about the inner workings of government, particularly at the Department of Justice. Lisa Graves is now the executive director of TrueNorthResearch.org. She's board president of the Center for Media and Democracy. Uh, and she also happens to be a former department, I'm sorry, a former deputy assistant attorney general at the U.S. Justice Department herself. She's also a former chief counsel for nominations in the U.S. Senate and a former deputy chief for the U.S. court system and a longtime friend of the broadcast. Welcome back, Lisa Graves. Great to have you here. 
thank you so much, Brad. I am a longtime fan in front of the broadcast. Thanks for having me. <laughs> You're very kind. Uh, also, as always, during our J6 hearings special coverage, we're joined once again by Heather Digby Parton, known as simply Digby to her fans at her long-running Hullabaloo blog and as an award-winning opinion and analysis journalist at Salon.com. And I think this would be, well, of course, Heather's fifth appearance on the show to cover the hearings to date. One more such appearance, and she will earn a free sub sandwich. Welcome back <laughs> to the show, Heather. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm so exhausted uh, and hungry. So, I, I know. Here well, we are. <laughs> there you go. Uh, okay, uh, as the hearings uh, just finished, as I said, literally about 20 minutes or so before going on air, we haven't been able to pull as many clips as we normally do. So I'm going to have to count on you two to uh, help uh, you know, paint colorful pictures of the drama today. Um, Heather, of all of the uh, Trump plots to steal the 2020 election, this is the one that frankly terrified me the most. And it seems to have been the closest to have actually, you know, almost been pulled off. And uh, there have been some comparisons to Richard Nixon's Saturday Night Massacre uh, as he kept firing AGs until he found one. Robert Bork, who uh, that was willing to fire the special counsel overseeing the Watergate investigation. Uh, but from what we've learned about Trump's plot, had it been successful, it seems to me that it would have made that one, the Saturday Night Massacre, pale by comparison. Am I right about that? Well, I think so. I mean, the Saturday Night Massacre was, was you know, an abomination, as we know, and it certainly did shift the entire um, sort of political environment that was, that was, you know, that was unfolding during the Watergate mm-hmm. uh, scandal. But but this would have been completely different. I mean, we were, you know, just weeks away, just like three weeks away, I think, at the time of of the inauguration, and there was this dispute, this this trumped up dispute over the election. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can imagine what kind. I mean, that that would literally have been the constitutional crisis that everybody was kind of hinting at at mm-hmm. the time, which we now look back in retrospect. And realize it was a very close thing. I mean, yep. this, when you say overthrow the government, you know, sometimes that's a little confusing because Trump was the president at the time. Right. So was he overthrowing the government, his own, you know, his own government? Which is why I well, say yeah. steal election. That, you know, everyone could understand that he tried to steal the election. But, yeah, he was trying to overthrow the government. Yeah, I mean, literally so. In this sense, what he was trying to do was to was to basically put the Department of Justice at his service and all these people leaving uh, which, you know, is very interesting to me that, that, that he actually backed off on that. It may be one of the few rational decisions he made during that period. And, and frankly, I'm, you know, I'm a little surprised they were able to, to reason with him at that <laughs> moment enough to get him to see what, uh, what kind of a, uh, you know, a risk he would be taking mm-hmm. because he was already so far out, you know, completely out to lunch on everything yep. that, uh, you know, I'm surprised that he was able to see just, you know, how serious it would be if the entire upper level and God knows how many U.S. attorneys uh, decided to leave. And, you know, what it does say, though, right, is that Trump was not irrational. He did know what Mm. he was doing. So, you know, a new interesting data point that comes out of that. Excellent, excellent point. Uh, Lisa Graves, as a former DOJ official with one of those really long titles, uh, Deputy Assistant Attorney General, uh, I think you served uh, during both Bill Clinton and George W. Bush administrations. Am I right? I, I did. I uh, I participated in the orderly transition of government. Were you there? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, between the uh, transition from the Clinton administration to the Bush administration and 
um, had uh, the opportunity, so to speak, to advise uh, Attorney General John Ashcroft mm-hmm. uh, before I left to go become the deputy chief for the U.S. court system for the Article Three judges. So um, that's a that's a tale for drinks, perhaps one of these days. But um, uh, <laughs> well, now is no time to celebrate, given the you know <laughs> seriousness of what we saw unfold today. Well, what I'm I'm curious about is during you know all your years at Justice, and and I know there was uh, quite a bit of dysfunction. Uh, at, well, certainly at W's uh, DOJ. I mean. Did you ever witness anything remotely like this kind of jockeying for position, uh, much less for the top gig as attorney general, you know, among the uh, a rank and file deputy or assistant AG uh, at, at, at the Justice Department? In other words, how unusual uh, was something like what Jeffrey Clark was trying to pull off? Well, I have to say that Ms. Reno was, a uh, you know, a very... Um thoughtful leader of the department, and uh, there were no such machinations. Um, uh, you know, when Ashcroft came in, it was sort of, there was a delay for his confirmation, so there was a lot of jockeying, and one of the people jockeying for position was Ted Cruz. Mm. So I had the, um, I don't know if it's mispleasure, displeasure, <laughs> uh, of um, having to work with him on some occasions, and, uh, and uh, one of the things that happened when I would have to bring uh, briefing books down to his office was that uh, he had this little uh, paperweight that sparkled in the sun, and I didn't really ever want to go too far into his office before, you know, for fear of getting trapped uh, by his questions about who I could trust, oh. who he could trust, that was the question. Uh, but one day he was on the phone, and so I sidled over to this paperweight, and I looked down, and the thing that was sparkling in the sun, they were chads. And uh-huh. uh, the paperweight said, uh, Bush Cheney Florida Recount Team 2000. Oh. Mm. And uh, so I thought I would share that with you, Brad, I thought, uh, and you and you as well, uh, Digby, yeah. uh, Heather. Uh, I, I thought that might be of interest. But I'll, I'll say that uh, the tale, uh, the, the story that was told today about this sort of not just forum shopping, but basically AG shopping yeah. uh, by the president and his, um, uh, like, the worst advisors possible, picking, plucking out uh, Jeffrey Clark, who actually was no- notorious for his role in trying to attack the EPA's endangerment finding before he was uh, tasked with leading the Environment and Natural Resources Division um, uh, within uh, the Justice Department, or having a senior role within the Justice Department. This is a man who um, uh, was willing to bend, uh, it seems, any law uh, in order to, to serve the political agenda of this president, and is exactly the type of person who should never be entrusted with any position of power or public trust. Uh, even though he'd been in a number of Republican administrations. He clearly is someone who was more than willing to set aside facts and law as the um, acting attorney general and the deputy attorney general uh, and the head of the, the Trump head of the Office of Legal Counsel detailed uh, during this hearing how Clark had no relevant experience to lead the United States Department of Justice, how he was uh, willing to put forward letters that were crafted seemingly by John Eastman, the man who um, is also at the center of this series of um, what I believe to be crimes that mm-hmm. have been described by the evidence that has been put forward by this committee, um, and even um, you know sought to uh, enlist the um, acting attorney general and deputy attorney general in his scheme, in this scheme, to direct these state legislatures to set aside the lawful votes of the American people mm-hmm. and to substitute an alternate fake slate of electors in order to provide a basis 
uh, an illegitimate basis, mm-hmm. quite frankly, for uh, Mike Pence to not allow the votes to be counted on January 6th. And so uh, what we see is this man at the center of, of a uh, criminal conspiracy, in my view, and the president is at the helm of that conspiracy. And I was certainly um, uh, interested to see that today the Justice Department did execute a subpoena to seize uh, uh, presumably documents and devices from uh, Mr. Clark. We'll see what remains of his devices uh, <laughs> and what may be retrievable uh, from those devices. But I'm glad that there was action by the Justice Department to gather evidence, even though it is now 2022, uh, to execute such a warrant uh, to seize materials that he may have. And and he did. And actually, I have some uh, I have some follow ups on on the way the DOJ works. But uh, are you able to tell I, I know they uh, raided his home. I think it was a pre-dawn raid on Wednesday. Um, but I, it's unclear to me what laws would have actually been broken. And Lisa Graves, you you know referenced a, a criminal conspiracy. But um, what laws would have been broken in the case where Donald Trump fires uh, his acting AG? He's got the right to fire him and had then you know replaced him with Jeffrey Clark, who moved ahead with this uh, with this scheme. What would actually be unlawful about that? Well, I think that you, you know, uh, uh, as as everyone knows, um, the Attorney General can you know can um, be replaced by a president, even though the mm-hmm. Attorney General is confirmed by the United States Senate. But here you have an effort to install someone uh, with a specific purpose to interfere in a lawful election, to, um, in essence, direct these states to uh, set aside the lawful votes, to interfere um, in uh, the, uh, the electoral count that was slated to happen by our Constitution on January 6th of that year. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, I don't think it was for uh, his role in seeking the office of attorney general, but I presume that the that the um, search warrant was executed, and I haven't read uh, the terms of it yet, um, but I presume that it was in connection with this uh, broader scheme, the scheme to um, set aside the election, to interfere mm-hmm. with um, that the, that lawful activity of our um, of our United States government. Well, in, in you know in. Uh, uh, how our democracy is supposed to function. Those are constitutional duties. Um, they are legal duties, and they are important ones. And so, I don't know, we'll, we'll see. Um, you know, I don't know. We don't know uh, whether there is a grand jury sitting right now. Uh, we don't know what the array of crimes uh, uh, that have uh, occurred may be charged. I think we've certainly seen evidence of crimes, uh, and, and some of that is well before this hearing, when you um, when we heard uh, the, the audio of Donald Trump threatening the Secretary of State of Georgia, uh, Brad Raffensperger, with uh, potential criminal prosecution for failing mm-hmm. to do the bidding of Donald Trump. Well, I, uh, I think there's a myriad of crimes that may have been committed by these um, individuals, Donald Trump and, and the people who were aiding and abetting him. I hope that you're right, Lisa, about, uh, you know, that, that trying to get him for uh, partaking in this uh, scheme to stop the uh, peaceful transfer of power, because if you are right about that, if that is what the Department of Justice is looking for with Jeff Clark, well, there's a few uh, guys who were above him, at least one guy who was above him, Donald Trump, who would have, uh, you know, obviously participated in that exact same thing. And if the DOJ is now uh, rounding up folks who participated in that conspiracy, 
That's good news for Americans, bad news for the president, the disgraced former president of the United States. Heather, uh, when, when, you know, when they started this thing, uh, these hearings, uh, Liz Cheney, I think, uh, said that they plan, you know, when they announced the co- committee that the, Liz Cheney, I think it was, said that they plan to review every minute, every phone call, every email, every text message around what happened on January 6th. Uh, I thought at the time, well, that was an exaggeration. They're not going to look at every minute, every text message. But it wasn't. That's actually what they've done, it seems to me. A-plus for the committee, in my opinion. Uh, As someone who's been following all this stuff very closely, nonetheless, what did you glean from Thursday's hearings that you did not uh, know or fully understand uh, before day five? Well, you know, I'm I'm one of those nerds who's read all these books, right, by the journalists and, you Mm -hmm. know, various people from the big newspapers about the this this post-election period Mm -hmm. and and subsequent to that so i knew a lot of this stuff and we've seen a lot of it reported in the newspapers as well but there's just nothing like having the actual people who were there relay this information and tell us you know in in their own voices exactly what happened Mm -hmm. and so you know i think it was this one was intensely valuable for that because these guys and this is the thing i mean i keep saying this but it's so important for people to realize this you know there's going to be a huge pushback there already is one on the part of the republicans say oh this is a partisan hearing and there's nobody there to support the president's side and blah 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 well these were trump people i mean jeff rosen and and stephen engel in particular but they were Trumpers. Yeah. I mean, these these are people, and you know, they, they they wouldn't have been there in December of 2020 if they had were not real Trump people, right? <laughs> mm-hmm, I mean, right. This, you know, anybody with any anybody who understood what was they were dealing with had left long ago. Even even Bill Barr, you know, jumped ship. <laughs> exactly. So I mean, these people they were the real deal, and 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 they were definitely Trump people, just like Rusty Bowers, the guy who who. Uh, from Arizona, who mm-hmm. testified the other day. I mean, all of these people who were testifying in, in at great length and in great detail and very vividly telling the story of what happened are Trump people. <laughs> They're not defending him because he is indefensible. And and the, the idea that somehow or another this is partisan mm-hmm. is ridiculous. It would be partisan if they had, I don't know, AOC up there testifying all day, right? <laughs> right. Or, or they it was just it was just, you know, some kind of nonstop, you know, rah rah for Joe Biden or something. But I mean that that is not what's happening here. These are Republicans. So to that extent, when you watch these things and you watch these guys who I truly believe, especially Engel, who was involved in some pretty dicey stuff for Trump over mm-hmm. he's from the uh, uh, legal counsel, yeah. and he's not somebody I would have ever, you know, thought <laughs> who had a lot of integrity. Let me just put it that way. But even for people even like him. him, this was too much. Yeah. This is a, it went too far, and I think that that really that speaks volumes I, uh, about the the committee and, and how and and the story that they're telling. And it should be noted that it was uh, Adam Kinzinger, Republican from right. Illinois, who led the uh, the questioning uh, on Thursday of the three DOJ officials. I got to get to a quick break here. Uh, so very quickly, Lisa Graves, you know the testimony that uh, this low level guy Jeff Clark was asked to meet directly with the president in the Oval Office, apparently did several times, uh, and didn't tell the attorney general. Apparently that was in violation of DOJ policy or guidelines. What would you have done when you were at the DOJ uh, as an assistant deputy attorney general had you been invited 
to meet the president at the White House in the Oval Office. Uh, What would have been the process for something like that? Well, I was Deputy Assistant Attorney General, and before that I was um, a senior counsel in counsel, and the rules were quite clear in the department um, that no one was permitted to go to the White House to meet with the president or other officials unless those visits were approved. The same rule actually also applied with respect to Congress. There are offices at the department, uh, the Office of Legislative Affairs, which handles those direct communications with Congress, and they are the conduits for those communications, other than, you know, the Attorney General himself or herself. And similarly, um, when I was invited to go to the White House for meetings, those were always meetings that were approved um, as part of, you know, our official delegation to uh, the, to the White House from the Justice Department on official matters. And so it, it's highly irregular and unacceptable for uh, other attorneys to be meeting with the White House for the very reasons that Mr. Rosen um, and the others describe, which is that you cannot have um, attorneys and other um, staff of the department uh, basically being pressured by a president or his, his or her staff to do the bidding, the political agenda of the president. The Department of Justice is supposed to be uh, separate from those political machinations, uh, and the presidents are not supposed to be involved in criminal prosecutions or other other matters, decisions by the Justice Department. And so it's um, it's extraordinarily irregular. And I just wanted to say one of the um, you know joys of my working at, at Maine Justice was coming in through the aluminum, the beautiful aluminum doors on Pennsylvania Avenue, um, which are where there's engraved at the top that the place of justice is a hallowed place. Um, and it's hallowed by the acts of civil servants to um, serve the people of this this country uh, without uh, a political you know political agenda, partisan agenda, but to serve all of the American people and not to serve uh, one president or and his political electoral agenda. Uh-huh. And so to have someone like Clark in a role at the department that he's clearly unfit for, I hope he's never allowed to be appointed to anything ever again. He <laughs> is unworthy of public trust. Maybe dishwasher in prison. Uh, and uh, by the way, how big of a deal would it have been uh, when you were at DOJ if all of the assistant AGs at once had said that they would resign if something happened? Uh, it would be an enormously big deal. And um, uh, I think that th- that's the one um, you know, uh, real threat in some ways that those officials hold is the ability to resign together mm-hmm. uh, against uh, a request to engage in illegal conduct. Um, so that is the, the appropriate course of action, along with telling the public what's happening at the time, unlike Bill Barr, who did not tell the public what was happening at the time and only spoke, I think, truthfully when he was under oath about what was happening. His public statements were very, you know, obsequious toward, uh, toward Donald Trump, despite what he knew was happening behind the scenes. And, um, you know, I am appreciative of the testimony of the gentleman today, and I also wish that they had spoken out directly at the time yep. to describe the scheme, the illegal schemes that Mr. Clark um, was attempting to engage in on behalf of, of President Trump, which they themselves told him personally he was uh, engaging in during those meetings that were described in detail today for Congress and for the American people. That is Lisa Graves, former Deputy Assistant Attorney General at the U.S. Department of Justice. She is my guest, along with Heather Digby-Parton of Salon and Hullabaloo. i got to take a quick break. We're back with more special coverage of Day 5 of the January 6 hearings with both of them and Desi Doyen. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast.
Hey, this is Brad here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com. We fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. You're listening to an encore presentation of the Bradcast. The issue really wasn't about me. The issue was the use of the Justice Department. And it's just so important that the Justice Department uh, adhere to the facts and the law. That's what it's there to do. And that's what uh, our constitutional role was. And so if the Justice Department gets out of the role that it's supposed to play, that's really bad for our country. And when you damage our fundamental institutions, it's not easy to repair them. Man, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Special coverage of day five of the January 6th hearings. That was uh, former acting attorney general Jeff Rosen uh, talking about, uh, you know, just what the what it was that Donald Trump was asking him to do that he was refusing to do, essentially refusing to lie about fraud in the 2020 election. Uh, welcome back. We're we're here with Lisa Graves and Heather Digby Parton. Heather, um, Trump was told over and over again that these claims were false. We talked a little bit about this uh, at the previous hearing. He was told by everyone that he spoke to. Uh, you know, we heard it with his phone call with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. But now we hear it from, you know, top members of the DOJ who had to chase down every single nonsensical conspiracy theory that Donald Trump brought to him, dragged in from the Internet. Now, I was chasing those down as well, but that's kind of my job. But it didn't matter to Trump that these claims were false. He did not care. And he even went and repeated them, uh, you know, on January 6th at his rally at the eclipse uh, at the uh, ellipse. But it seems like the fact that it was false is sort of beside the point. The claims were enough as he saw it. That was all he needed. He said, let the me and the Republican congressman take care about it. How do we even make sense of that kind of thinking? It's very difficult, especially when you get to the end there. You know, I mean, it was one thing back in the early part of December when they were kind of working up the the various strands of the coup plotting that they were doing with Rudy out in the courts and, you know, running his game with Sidney Powell and Jenna Ellis and all of that. I mean, they were trying to take these crazy cases to court and probably testing the thesis that, hey, we got all these Trump judges, maybe we'll, maybe we can really make some of this work. None of that worked, right? I mean, that was, that was kind of the end of it, which, you know, you can, you can make a case that he had a right to do that. It was stupid and ridiculous and undemocratic and unethical, but okay, there is that avenue for someone to challenge elections. All those cases, none of them panned out, and at that point he refused to give up. He refused to admit that, still admit that he had lost. So then we're dealing, I think, with a psychological problem, which I think we can all agree is what we're dealing with, with <laughs> Donald Trump. Yes. Um, and, you know, he, he just... He could not give it up. One of the most vivid moments in the, in the, in the hearing was um, it was Donahue 
who was an excellent witness, by the way. I mm-hmm. thought he was really, really yeah. good. Um, and he he said that, you know, after this amazing meeting that they had, right, with all of them sitting there, he's there in his T-shirt and muddy boots, and they're having this big conversation, and, and they all threatened to quit, and it was the murder-suicide pack, et cetera, et cetera. Uh-huh. There's this big moment. He goes back to the office, and just within an hour or so, Trump's calling him up and saying, hey, have you heard about this truckload of <laughs> shredded ballots, <laughs> shredded ballots yes. down in Georgia? And it's like, that's insane, right? I mean, that, is, yeah. that, that suggests that there's something really wrong with him. So here we are again wondering, did he know that, that he had lost? Did he not know? He was told. Could he, is he incapable of understanding? And I keep coming back to the same thing. If he did know and he was just lying to save his, his ego, mm-hmm. Okay, then you know that's he's a you know he is what he is, and and he's a psychopath or a sociopath. Of that, mm-hmm. but if he's crazy and really did not understand after all of this, couldn't comprehend what uh, you know uh, dozens and dozens of people around him, some of his closest aides were telling him, then how in the world could that guy be president again? I mean, it's like we barely escaped that 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 the man is completely. I mean, he's got you know, obviously some kind of mental issues that, that should preclude him. And that brings me to something that Lisa said before before the break, which mm-hmm. was, you know, she said she wishes that they'd come forward at the time, and I think we all do. It's kind of, you know, where why are we only hearing so much about this now, right? Why, why, why wasn't that said in the moment? And, you know, I guess I can understand on some level that people didn't know how far it was going to go, and it was before January 6th, so nobody knew there was going to be a riot and an insurrection. But, you know, when everybody did know what had happened, understood the full scope of, uh, and the consequence of what Trump had done, was after January 6th when they impeached Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And if these people had all come forward then, mm. during that impeachment, yes. when there was still a moment right. when maybe they could have grabbed enough Republicans to do it, and I know it was a long shot, but you never know, if all of those people had come forward then, then they could have at the very, you know, it wouldn't have meant anything to what had happened, but it would have precluded Donald Trump from running for office mm-hmm. again. Yeah. That was the reason for doing the impeachment, and they didn't do it. So, you know, as much as I am glad that they're saying what they're saying, and let's hope it adds up to something, and, you know, history now at least will have a proper record, I, I find it hard to understand why after what they knew, that they didn't come forward in that particular moment to, at the very least, spare us what we're about to experience, which is another Donald Trump campaign and potential Donald Trump administration, which, which is unthinkable. W- and which wouldn't have happened had he been found guilty. That's right. And uh, we should note, by the way, a majority of the Senate, of the Senate, a bipartisan majority of the Senate, did think he was guilty of right. inciting this riot. I hate when they say, oh, he was acquitted. Well, he was acquitted, except there was a 57-43 majority of senators felt he was guilty of inciting this insurrection of the U.S. government. Um, Lisa, let me pick up on on, on this point about, uh, you know, just how insane Donald Trump is or isn't. I don't think he's insane because there's a whole bunch of people uh, just like him who hear about these claims about fraud and they are debunked and yet they believe them over and over again. Now, all of these folks, these MAGA folks, including Jeff Clark, They all believed, it seems, this nonsense about fraud that was simply not true. 
uh, no matter how many times that they were told. Now, uh, before you were, uh, well, actually, since um, uh, working at the Department of Justice, you found a respectable line of work by uh, <laughs> investigating uh, sort of these right-wing networks. You've spearheaded over many years a lot of breakthrough investigations into the distortion of American democracy and public policy by folks like the infamous Koch brothers and now the Koch network. Is this how they operate, simply repeating each other's fraudulent nonsense to each other, no matter how many times it's been shown to be nonsense, and then build a political strategy on that? How should we understand this among the right that you have studied? And is there a similar mindset uh, among those on the left? Hmm. Well, you know, I was going to say, Brad, that uh, uh, on the on the first point, I think, the beginning of that, you know, I, obviously, as you point out, there, a, a majority of senators found that there was ample evidence to impeach Donald Trump and bar him from future political office. Mm-hmm. And I and I, I I agree with you. I think that he is um, not uh, incompetent in the sense of um, not being able to be held responsible for his actions, you know, like mental, uh, criminally insane. Mm-hmm. He is someone who is malevolent. Uh, he, in my personal view, is someone who is like a magnet uh, of, of corruption and people who are venal and who seek power um, at any cost, and he attracts them like iron, like a magnet attracts iron filing, filing mm-hmm. <clears throat> surrounding himself with some of the most corrupt and uh, venal people uh, that we've ever seen uh, in uh, an administration. And that's actually saying something, yes. given, uh, you know, the history with Nixon and some of the others. Yeah. But the fact is, is that, um, you know, I, I think that uh, you, you can't really um, underestimate his determination to get power and remain in power. And I think his former counsel... Uh, who, you know, uh, was convicted and uh, served time, uh, Mr. Cohen, uh, described quite plainly to Congress over a year ago that if Trump, you know, were elected, that he would never leave office willingly. He was absolutely correct in that. He knows the man. And that's what we saw here, was yep. an attempt to use any anything to stay in power, no matter how false, how disproven, how debunked. And you can see that in the statement that was emphasized by Congressman Kinzinger and by the witnesses, that in essence, Donald Trump said to, said to the top officials of the Justice Department, just sign on to this and we'll take care of the rest. doesn't matter that, that these officials have told him that these claims are baseless, that there aren't facts to support them, that the facts have been refuted, mm-hmm. debunked, that they're groundless, that the legal theories are, are outlandish and outrageous and unsupported. He was willing to say anything, do anything to stay in power, um, and that's what the evidence shows, which shows that he's, um, you know, unfit for public office. And I, I do think, you know, to your to the question that you concluded with, mm-hmm. you know, how can people believe this? You know, first of all, it's not that it's just Trump, this malevolent figure who is um, sort of uh, fi- fixing, you know, fixing himself as their savior, as the embodiment of their ability to um, express hate without um, without uh, shame. Um, it's that it's that Trump is someone who um, lies to them, but those lies are backed up every single night by Fox News personalities, and yeah. not news, but that's what you know yeah. the official name. But Fox yeah. personalities who are continuing to perpetuate Trump's lies um, on you know basically on almost every issue. But the thing about it is, is that that's not the only lie they've told. 
Fox wasn't telling the American people that were watching Fox that the economy was doing so much better under Obama, that the stock market was going up and up and up. It only started emphasizing the stock market's growth mm-hmm. after Trump was elected. Right. So all those people who watch Fox weren't told. Um, that is the same trend line um, on the economy until COVID hit that was started under Obama. Now, I have criticisms of some of those economic policies because of the focus on Wall Street versus Main Street. And I know um, I know that that's been written about quite a bit on Hullabaloo, which I urge everyone <laughs> to subscribe to as well. But, you know, the fact is, is that lying to their constituents, lying to their audience, is part and parcel what Fox personalities like uh, Tucker Carlson do. They mislead them. They, like, redirect them, refocus them, look over here. Um, you know, they're not telling them about the unemployment rate right now. They're focusing on inflation, which is a real issue. But when they're talking about inflation, they're asserting that, that they're asserting that President Biden could do something about the price of gas. Meanwhile, these same pundits, you know, have talked about this free market sort of fundamentalism where the free market knows no wrong. And so those same politicians that Trump that Trump backs, that Trump is tied to, and that Fox backs, you know, are doing everything they can to stop there from being any regulation of these oil and gas companies, like a windfall profits tax and more. Instead, they want to somehow try to blame the blame President Biden in order to, and, you know, try to gain in the election. No. So that's it, lie after lie after lie from Trump and his and his cohorts, and it's surround sound due to Fox and OAN and Bannon and others. You're right. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And i got to get to a br- quick break here. Uh, but, yeah, you make a great point. It's one thing when you have... A, a you know a, an accomplished liar like uh, Donald Trump out there saying these lies over and over again, but it's another thing when you're hearing them echoed on uh, in, in your uh, media uh, media ecosystem, whether it's Fox News or I must point out all across the radio dial on the free public airwaves uh, where all of this stuff is also repeated. Good luck hearing people uh, tell the truth. Uh, As we try to do here on the broadcast, you are more likely to be groomed in your car on the way to and from work by all of these uh, all of these lies. Quick break and we're back for our closing few uh, thoughts. And we'll talk about these uh, little news here of these requests for pardons by at least five or six members of Congress who apparently, I guess, thought they did something wrong that merited a pardon from Donald Trump. Uh, we'll take a quick break. Come back with that with Heather Digby Parton and Lisa Graves. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Hey, this is Brad. You're listening to an encore presentation of the Bradcast. At some point, the conversation turned to whether Jeff Clark was even qualified, competent to run the Justice Department, which in my mind, he clearly was not. I thought it was useful to point out to the president that Jeff Clark simply didn't have the the skills, the ability and the experience to run the department. And so I said, Mr. President, you're talking about putting a man in that seat who has never tried a criminal case, 
who's never conducted a criminal investigation. He's telling you that he's going to take charge of the department, 115,000 employees, including the entire FBI, and turn the place on a dime and conduct nationwide criminal investigations that will produce results in a matter of days. It's impossible. It's absurd. It's not going to happen, and it's going to fail. Oh, what does he care? Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. That was the second in command at the Department of Justice as Donald Trump was trying to use the uh, DOJ to, yes, steal the 2020 election. Welcome back. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com and our special coverage of the fifth day of hearings in the uh, dramatic hearings in the U.S. House Select Committee investigating January 6th. Lisa Graves, um, there was a testimony at the very end about uh, the appeal for blanket pardons from Mo Brooks of Alabama, Matt Gates of Florida, Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, Louis Gohmert of Texas, Andy Biggs of Arizona. Uh, I think Jordan, uh, Joe, uh, Jim Jordan of Ohio brought it up but didn't ask directly for one. And I think they said Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia also sought a pardon. What does that mean? Uh, Isn't uh, involved in a pardon the recognition that the person being pardoned committed an actual crime, Lisa? Well, it certainly is a sign of a guilty conscience, uh, a fear that that they have committed a crime, and I think it's extremely troubling. There was also discussion of Trump discussing uh, pardoning family members and perhaps a blanket pardon for all staff involved, as well as for every single member who voted to stop the counting of the votes from Arizona and another state. Um, but I did want to flag that also there was no pardon apparently sought by, by Jeffrey Clark, but he was rewarded with a position at the New Civil Liberties Alliance, which was is a mm. Koch-funded group. There you go. Um, and now works for another uh, right-wing group that was emerged suddenly called the Center for Renewing America. So we're going to be looking into that. Uh, there's always wingnut welfare available, isn't there? <laughs> Heather, uh, and actually, let me get both of you real quick thoughts on this. Uh, you know, with these, uh, uh, there was news on Wednesday that the DOJ apparently dropped subpoenas um, in at least four different states, uh, looking for uh, or for for uh, to some of the folks who had signed up as fake Trump electors. Then there was the raid, apparently, on Jeffrey Clark's house on Wednesday. Um, and of course, Merrick Garland has said in recent days that he's watching. He and the January six investigators at DOJ are watching every hour of the House panel's hearings. Uh, let me ask both of you, start with Heather. Do you have confidence that they are, in fact, at the DOJ, working their way up the food chain uh, and will uh, bring charges against not just the lackeys on the ground on January 6th, but the actual ringleaders of these plots, including the former president? Well, I don't have any insight into the DOJ, as Lisa does, but I can just say that it's obvious to me, as just somebody observing this, that they are very, they are following this uh, alternate elector, fake elector um, situation now very seriously. And I even think the Jeffrey Clark thing may have had something to do with that since he wrote that letter uh, to Georgia, or he was trying to disseminate that letter to Georgia in which they were sort of using the, the John Eastman theory about, the, you know, with the alternate electors mm-hmm. and pressuring Mike Pence, which indicates, I think, what we're looking at is a conspiracy around that, right? It's not, and it's not just Eastman, and it's not just their lackeys 
you know, doing work in the various states where mm-hmm. they had that. It, it appears that there looks like there's a conspiracy that they are uncovering here, and they have a grand jury working on that. And so to does, that extent, I think that much is happening. And it, sure. it, I, it does look like they are working their way up, at least to me, because, you know, they've the organizers of the, uh, of the rallies on January 6th, now they're going to the fake electors it and then we hear that they've you know raided uh, jeffrey clark's house it does seem like they're working their way up uh, well the rnc was involved in that too we found that out mm-hmm. at the last hearing that they actually they they conscripted the rnc to help them with the alternate electors so this goes pretty deep i've got just a, a minute lisa graves uh do you have confidence that uh, merrick garland is working his way up the food chain here I have no inside information, but certainly executing a, a search warrant uh, is a sign that there's an ongoing criminal investigation, and I'm glad to hear that that's happening. I think we're all glad to hear that. Des, you got any <laughs> thoughts on this before yes, we get out? Yes, I mean, I, I, I am Team Marcy Wheeler on Empty Wheel. She is the one who has been following this more closely than I think anyone. Uh, she says, hey, have patience. This stuff takes time if you're going to do it right, and it must be done right. You're right. All right. Well, uh, guys, I think that uh, we are being told that while they were going to have a sixth hearing, I think either this week or next, all of that is now being pushed back until after the 4th of July break, as I understand it. Uh, I don't know if it has to do with the new videotape that they've got, the new uh, footage of the Trump family that they've got uh, from this filmmaker. Uh, or Jenny Thomas. uh, Oh, Oh, that's right, Jenny. Let's not ever forget about Jenny. And Mo. Mo's coming up, too. Uh, who is Mo, Mo Brooks? Brooks. Mo Brooks? Says, hey, I'm there. I'm ready to testify. Oh, he did. He said he'll he'll testify. Yeah, he under a bunch of conditions. Well, <laughs> now that he's got nothing to lose anymore because <laughs> yeah, he lost so in uh, Alabama. All right. Well, that that should be fun. I will look forward to talking to you both again uh, in the days <laughs> ahead. In that case, uh, thanks, guys. Of course, uh, that's Heather Digby Parton. She is with Salon.com. She's a longtime contributor there, and you can also find her work at Digby's blog. Blog.net and on the Twitters at Digby56. And Lisa Graves, former uh, federal prosecutor, now... No, federal attorney. Uh, sorry, federal attorney. <laughs> Thank you. It's been a long day. Former federal attorney Lisa Graves, uh, now finding respectable work at truenorthresearch.org. <laughs> and you can also find her on the Twitters at the Lisa Graves. Thanks to both of you. Thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, and yep. to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. That service is made possible by those of you kind enough to stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves to tell you the truth. You can drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. That is it. We will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. I'm Rick Smith. 
And this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1947. That was the day the despised Taft-Hartley Act became law. It was a direct retaliatory response to the 1946 post-war strike wave where millions walked off the job after waiting years for basic demands. The labor movement mobilized against the slave labor bill through numerous rallies. The AFL joined the CIO in threatening 24-hour strikes across whole industries in protest as the bill wound its way through Congress. 11,000 soft coal miners in Pennsylvania walked out in a spontaneous protest strike earlier in the month. The bill passed over the veto of President Harry S. Truman, who would invoke it a dozen times over the course of his presidency. Many union leaders hailed Truman as a friend of labor for his 11th hour veto. Labor Party advocates were incensed that of the 219 congressional Democrats, 126 voted in favor of the bill. Practically overnight, the labor movement had been pushed back 25 years. Taft-Hartley was nothing short of disastrous for the American labor movement. With the stroke of a pen, the act criminalized many of the actions key to historic union victories in the 30s and 40s. Jurisdictional strikes, secondary boycotts, solidarity strikes, closed shops, and mass picketing were just a few of the most basic trade union activities now outlawed. The act helped fire the first shots of the McCarthy Red Scare by mandating that union officers file non-communist affidavits with the government, which was later found to be unconstitutional. The act also provided the ammunition needed to strangle strikes by empowering the president to easily acquire strike-breaking injunctions. And it allowed for the rapid growth of right-to-work laws at the state level. And because of Taft-Hartley, the union movement has suffered ever since. 